Hello and welcome to episode 187 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me today is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles and Max Youngquist in Chicago. Is that right, Max? Chicago. Yes. Cool. Hey, guys. Um, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Uh, Nathan? Yeah, I'm actually well? not in Los Angeles. I am in the Central Valley of the San Joaquin Valley of California at my parents' house uh, here in the small town of Ripon, California. Ripon. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, today we are going to be interviewing Max and learning about his LSAT journey and many other things. We're also going to tackle another LSAT fundamental, this time on advanced conditional reasoning. And I guess we're going to take a quick look at a hilarious good luck email. Uh, good. I love these things. Yeah. They always offer great advice. But before, yeah, uh, we do all of that, let's, let's talk... St- Talk to Max. Max, you are a former podcast listener, an LSAT tutor. <laughs> current. Uh, current as well. I still listen. Oh, okay. You still, you still <laughs> uh, tolerate the show. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, an I LSAT probably tutor. won't listen to this. I can't, I can't stand the, to listen to my own voice for an hour. But <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, it can be uh, unnerving sometimes, but... Yeah, you should you should listen anyways. You'll 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 enjoy it. Is it because you don't like the sound of your own voice backs? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I'm sure you guys get used to it if you listen to it every time, but um, It's so weird. Yeah, cuz I remember being a little kid and like hearing myself on a tape recorder or any you know, just anytime I would hear my own voice and I would hate it. But uh now, yeah, I've totally I don't even notice anymore the difference. <laughs> it's weird. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, well, so Max, you're an LSAT tutor, you're an LSAT demon contributor, and you've never told me this, but based on our calls with the LSAT demon developers, I've sometimes heard small voices in the background, maybe <laughs> one small voice. I'm assuming that you're a father. Yes, there's two two small voices. Um, I have a four-year-old son and then a 10-month-old daughter, so you're probably hearing my daughter crying. I'm guessing in the background, although my son also might have been crying in the background. Uh, depends on the day. But yes, I am uh, a father. And actually, um, it's kind of interesting. Right when I was studying for the LSAT was right after my daughter was born. So it was kind of a kind of a crazy time. And looking back, I wish... Honestly, I had the demon at the time because I, you know, didn't have that as an option. I only had the the paper books to go off of and I'd have, you know, her like laying on my chest trying to get her to sleep while I've got like an LSAT book open in my other hand. Um, It was, it was kind of (laughs) crazy. Yeah, that does sound crazy. (laughs) Cool. Well, we, we have a lot of questions for you and I'm sure that the listeners want to hear about your LSAT journey and then also what you're doing now uh, for the demon. But I I didn't realize that you went from a 154 to a 175. I did. Yeah. So 154 um, was my diagnostic. And, you know, seeing that I... I didn't really know what to expect. I was kind of used to, you know, tests before like the ACT, SAT. Um, you know, I think my first 
first run on those probably was was higher and not saying that a 154 is a bad diagnostic by any means but you know I'm the kind of person that saw that and I was like all right I know I have a very high bar for myself so started immediately researching what resources are out there um, stumbled upon the podcast basically right away and that was the the best <laughs> the best thing that could have happened because I started listening and just um, again, self-studying when I had the time, which wasn't a ton. I had a full-time job, um, like I mentioned before, a newborn baby as well as a four-year-old, I guess a three-year-old at the time. So with a ton going on, I needed basically, um, you know, I'd work out every day and then just be listening to the podcast and kind of get my tips um, from the podcast and then go in and just use what you guys were saying in my studies. And I really saw, you know, whereas at first I was focusing sort of on a, I can just take a lot of tests. It was a quantity thing. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned from you guys was really quality over quantity. And so that's what made me focus more on, hey, even if I only have a re- an hour to review tonight, that hour I might spend on, you know, three LR questions versus taking, you know, two time sections and then not reviewing. So uh, at first, I think I was making very slow progress. And then the further I got into the podcast, I definitely noticed uh, my progress was picking up. And I was actually making um, pretty steady gains, just kind of keeping at it, you know, a little bit every day when I when I had the chance. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's cool to hear. I... Uh... <laughs> Sometimes wonder what it's like to be on the other side of this mic since Nathan and I just shoot the shit a lot. <laughs> wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say, Nathan? <laughs> yeah, we do. We, that's that's the fun of it. <laughs> yeah, that know. is the fun of it. So it's like, hmm, I hope people get stuff out of this, but people say that they do all the time, and you're saying that as well, Max, so um, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, what was great for me was when I was starting, you guys were already... Uh, I don't know, maybe 150 or so episodes in. So there was that huge back catalog and I could just go and basically, you know, throughout the workday, um, be listening to the podcast again when I was like working out, I'd listen to the podcast every day. I'd probably listen to, God, I don't know, four, three, four episodes a day, um, if I had to guess, <laughs> just from listening while I was at work, listening while I was uh going back and forth from work, listening, um, whenever I had a chance. So it was, it was great. And then again, I, I really did notice when I was first starting, uh, I think the first couple practice tests I did, you know, I hadn't listened to the podcast yet. And it really was a prime example of what you guys talked about that slot machine, um, you know, effect of, all right, I'm just going to take another, Oh, I don't like that score. I'm going to take another, and that was really that was really the only method I was using. And then just listening to you guys really helped refine kind of my strategy there. Cool, Nathan, do you have uh, questions? No, um, I mean I want to know all about this. I want to know about <laughs> what it's like working with you know, writing explanations for the demon now. I want to know about, I mean, we, we had beers the other night, Max and I, so I, I know a lot of this stuff, but the fact that he decided not to go to law school with his 175, I think the listeners are going to be very interested in that. 
Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that for sure. Um, but I can I can talk a little bit if, if it sounds good. Maybe talk about um, RC doing the RC explanations. Yeah. So yeah, first of all, it's been you know I would I would say if I had to before going in and doing these explanations, I'd probably say well you know RC in some sense was the section I was least interested in or was kind of the most I guess you know kind of tedious to study that sort of thing. Um, after doing these explanations, though, I have found that I've become a lot more interested in just kind of reading the, the content itself. I think they do a good job of actually, and you guys have talked about this, but putting together interesting um, topics and interesting, you know, questions about those topics as well. And I think it's, you know, if you find yourself complaining about the passages and saying you're not interested or you're bored or that sort of thing. Those are all excuses you can make to um, kind of tune out a little bit and not fully focus. Um, But as I've been doing these, I really found, again, they're interesting topics. And as uh, people's questions have come in, there's definitely some common themes for mistakes that I see people make. So I thought maybe I'll just talk about a couple of those. One, and I know you guys were just talking about RC, but one that happens again and again um, when I see these questions come in is just examples of people bringing in their outside information or outside sort of perspective to the passage and to the question. So just to give you a specific example, someone sent in a, a question the other day and without going into exactly what the passage was saying, uh, the passage was talking about like detective novels um, and sort of, uh, you know, this author was blending detective novels with other genres. Um, and the question, one, the correct answer said something like, you know, which of the, it was a which one of the following would the author most likely agree with? And the correct answer said something like, in detective novels, it should be uh, the assignment of culpability to the crime should be straightforward. And the user's question was something like, you know, why, why straightforward? Isn't a detective novel supposed to have suspense and mystery? And as soon as I saw that supposed to have, that's kind of the root of a lot of these questions that I'll get. And a lot of the issues that people have is they're thinking about how things are supposed to be, how things are in the real world, their impressions of, um, how the real world works, at least according to their experiences. And, you know, before I even went and read the passage, I knew what their problem was. They needed to focus on what this person said on the page, right? It's just, was it on the page or not? If this person says in a detective novel, the assignment of culpability for the crime needs to be straightforward, well, then that's what the answer, that's what the correct answer needs to say, right? And so it doesn't actually matter if, you know, you don't understand, or a lot of times I'll hear people say things like, you know, this answer choice, it just doesn't make sense. Like, how does, how does that work? Like, I'll be in a tutoring session, I'll hear people say, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, it doesn't have to make sense or jive with your previous understanding of how the world works. If this person, this author might, you know, just have a different perspective than you. So you need to stick very firmly within what is on the page. Um, And I think if you do that, 
you're you're in a pretty good spot not to kind of go too far, go beyond the boundaries of where the passage took you and pick an answer choice that, um, again, just takes you too far, takes it from something that's a must be true to only a could be true or even uh, a must be false. That goes along with the one thing I always say about reading comp is just that you have to remember what they're testing in the reading comprehension section. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not testing your knowledge of detective novels. (laughs) They're testing (laughs) your reading comprehension. What did it say on the page? That's what they're testing you on. Yeah, absolutely. And so anytime you feel like, you know, again, there's times and, and you guys have talked about this. There's times where, you know, if you have outside information, it might help you to understand certain topics more. So it's not necessarily like, oh, if you have outside information, it's always going to lead you astray. But what you want to make sure is your outside information, if it doesn't, quote, you know, if it doesn't sort of fit within the the information on the page, you have to stick with what's on the page. And then one other thing um, just quickly on RC that I wanted to give people a tip on was I was tutoring with a student the other day who had done an RC passage and um, it was one of those passages where the author did actually sort of make a stance. They had an opinion, but it was buried halfway through um, a paragraph and it was really only one sentence mentioning it. They didn't really loop around and come back to it very much for the rest of the paragraph, at least not directly. And so uh, this student just completely missed that the author even gave an opinion. So one tip to help see that coming, it kind of goes along with what you guys are always saying about predicting what's coming next. One thing that can help you predict is to pay attention to that first sentence of the paragraph. Sometimes even if it doesn't directly say I'm going to give you an opinion right now. You can pay attention to the phrase and the language that they use and they can clue you in to the fact that an opinion might be coming. So I'll give you a specific example. Um, This passage, the paragraph in question started with the phrase, no one will deny that. And so if you just think about the way people use that phrase in everyday uh, everyday English, when you say no one will deny that, you're basically granting something that we can all agree on, but for the purpose of going on to deny something else, right? You're saying no one will deny this, and then you go on and basically argue against something else. Well, what this student did is they saw that no one will deny that. And when I read that, I'm saying, oh, okay, so you are, you have an opinion. You're going to tell me after this what you do deny, right? What you are, are disagreeing with. This student kind of missed that and then missed the opinion later down in that paragraph. I think if you can pay attention to the way that that phrase was used, that could help you sort of predict, okay, they're going to follow this up now with something that we could deny. And then that's likely going to be part of the author's main point, right? If they're coming out there and saying their opinion, the main point answer choices are, should not just stop at the facts that that author reported on. You want to include, hey, they took a stance. What was that stance? And so this student went on to basically miss at least half of the questions in the passage 
Because as you guys are always saying, it's, you know, even if they're not directly main point questions, it doesn't say main point in the question itself. These are all or at least probably half of the questions in that um, in that passage are variations on main point questions. And so he ended up missing half the questions, whereas if he would have seen that the opinion was there, which he could have been kind of clued into because of that, no one will deny that. I think he probably would have gotten all or, or most of those those questions right. So just a couple things to think about. We don't, I know, I know again, you're just talking about RC, so we don't have to spend forever on RC, but just a couple of things that I've seen from writing these explanations and from kind of getting uh, getting questions from from users of the daemon. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very helpful. I you know one thing I wanted to talk about was this idea that you mentioned early on that uh, people shouldn't bring in their outside you know assumptions about the world when answering the questions. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like that is immensely valuable as you're reading the passage. In other words, yes. I use my outside knowledge or expectations about the world uh, or for the world to react to what I'm reading, right? So it's like I read that first sentence and I'm like, hmm, that's not what I would expect or that is what I would expect. If they say that most scientists think that the world is getting warmer, I'm like, yeah, okay, that kind of makes sense to me. If they say that they don't, then I might be surprised, but it, it allows me to engage with the passage. That doesn't mean that I assume foolishly that that's what the author is saying. I just use that to try to decipher what the author is saying because I'm I'm concerned that so many people read these sentences and then just shoulder shrug, right? It's like, oh, the world's going to end in the next six weeks, and they're like, hmm, interesting. Like, I'd be like, what? <laughs> what? Huh? Why, yeah. why did you say that? Like, yeah. that's weird. And, and there's a lot of things. I mean, even though most of these passages are, um, you know, on topics that people might not uh, find, seek out <laughs> in their everyday life, uh, 18th century painting might might not be your thing. But they can still say things about 18th century painting that I would not expect, right? I'm learning things from the test all the time. And since these are based on actual articles from other publications, it's like, hey, this, you know, this can be interesting. And does it jive with what you expect of the world or not? And if not, why not? And use that to decipher what the author is saying. But at the end of the day, of course, you have to separate what you're thinking from what the author is thinking, um, Can like I chime saying. in with another specific example of this? Please. Um, that passage where it's about whether we know our own thoughts directly or indirectly. <laughs> yeah, most people find this to be a very challenging passage. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> right at the beginning of the passage, the, it's like in the first five lines or something, they describe a study in which these children were incorrectly describing their own thoughts. Yeah. It's like, how the hell do you know? <laughs> yep. And, and if, if you're a skeptical reader, you know, you don't, you don't shut off your knowledge of the world. It's not like I'm just completely like blank minded as I'm reading the passage, you know, I have to be like an engaged critical thinker who like went to college and stuff, you know? And so, but I read that and I go, wait, the kids were incorrectly describing their own thoughts? How do you possibly know that these kids were incorrectly describing their own thoughts? And they never, 
even tell you. They they don't actually get there. They don't they don't tell you how how they knew that. Mm-hmm. But the very last question in in that passage asks you, "Hey, why did the scientists use these kids?" And if you had been tuned in and if you had been skeptically critically reading like engaged with the passage, you would go, "Oh, you mean those kids that were incorrectly describing their own thoughts?" Mm-hmm. That's literally the only thing you told me about these kids is that they were incorrectly describing their own thoughts. I was really curious why, like, how do you know that they're incorrectly describing their own thoughts? But the correct answer to that question is basically uh, because they were incorrectly describing their own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, you don't, you don't catch that. If you're just sort of like blankly accepting everything, you just don't even remember. It's just like, Oh, there was a study. I don't know. I don't know. We're trying to figure yep. out if you're inferring your own thoughts or if you know the, your own thoughts directly. I, I don't know. I, I, I forget. Because <laughs> you weren't like engaged with it. And so it's just like, I'm not saying that like I have outside knowledge that it would be impossible to know whether someone was incorrectly describing their own thoughts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'm allowed to ask that question. And when I ask that question, then I have a better comprehension of, of what the passage does say. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think outside information helps you think of the questions to ask, and it helps you to sort of think through what are the possible branches that this passage could take. So when I'm making a prediction, I'm thinking, I'm usually making several. I think it could go either this way, this way, or this way. I think outside information helps you to think of those branches. Again, if we go back to the global warming uh, example, right? If you have familiarity with the different sides, if you want to call it the different sides of that debate, you would be sort of familiar with, okay, well, it, they could go this way. They could talk about people who deny global warming. They could talk about, you know, here's the evidence. But I think just, yeah, it helps you to think through, here's the questions I would ask. Here's the different predictions of where I think this could go. But when you get down to the questions, you have to sort of make sure that, again, like if I'm thinking about what are the directions it could go and using my outside information to come up with that, when I get to the end of the passage, I just need to make sure I check in with, okay, where did they actually go (laughs) and how far did they go? And that might be different than what I thought initially. The the prediction is going to help you as you're reading. But then as you sit and come up with the main point at the end, that's where I think you want to, and I, you know, even put this in my explanations, I like to think of it as I sit for a second, just think exactly how far did each side in this debate go? And sometimes I'll even think about, well, what, um, I'll think of examples of things that they didn't say, because then you're sort of already predicting wrong answers to must be trues, like, you there's only so many types of ways they ask you these questions and so if you get good at reading comp just by the language they use in the passage and them saying oh um they think this is a uh, could be a possible solution but that solution needs to be vetted out in the future right i'm already predicting wrong answer choices that say this solution will solve the problem 100% right because that's they're going to do that. I can almost guarantee you without even looking at the questions, there's going to be an answer choice that takes it all the way to this definitely solves the problem. 
and that's just not what they said. So you want to check in with, compare back to your predictions and make sure before you go into the questions, you kind of turn off that, all right, here's where I was thinking things could go. When you don't turn that off, when you go into the questions, that's when you're could uh, really be in trouble. Yeah, that's an excellent point. One thing I wanted to talk about predictions really quick, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, I feel like it is related. And that is that when, sometimes when people encounter sentences that are abstract and hard to follow, we say, hey, look, read it again, make sure you understand it. And sometimes I read these sentences again, and I'm like, this is abstract enough, or the the subject or the actor is not obvious enough that I'm not exactly sure what this sentence is saying. So not only am I making a prediction about where the passage is going, but at this point, I'm kind of stuck, because I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure what this sentence is saying exactly. But I do make predictions about one or two, like, hmm, this sentence could be interpreted this way. It could be referring to this group of people, or it could be referring to that group of people. And by taking the time to think about those possible interpretations, as soon as I read the next sentence, or maybe the sentence after that, it becomes very obvious which interpretation was correct. And so it's like, it, it's, it's, it's almost like I'm formulating a question in my mind. Does the author mean this, or does the author mean that? And then it becomes quite obvious as you continue reading the passage because there's only one way that that sentence could have been interpreted given what's said next. But I don't think people take the time to do that. Instead, they just throw up their hands and say, this sentence is ambiguous or unclear, um, moving on, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a form of predicting, but it's specifically related to the individual sentences rather than the overall structure of the the passage. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's that's great. Um, just one other thing, one other tip I'll give um, on RC is when you're thinking about the main point, and again, the, as I was just saying, and as you guys are always saying, understanding the main point, it's yes, it's going to help you on the direct, that first main point question, but it's almost always going to help you on other questions later in the passage. One thing that I always think about, I kind of break up art or break up passages into or categorize passages, I guess, into um, a few different uh, categories based on, okay, was this just someone that reported on facts? That's kind of the um, first level. Next level up is did this person um, report on facts of the world and then also express a problem that they see? Um, so they're like, oh, okay, these people think this and they're wrong. Here's why. And then the next level up from that would be, they actually, uh, prescribe instead of just describe, they prescribe a solution to that problem. And I like to think of that hierarchy because it helps me. I basically just think of what level did they get to? Did they only report? Did they report and give us the problem? Or did they give us the problem and the solution, right? Because if you think about the main point, the main point basically, I mean, I'm sure you can find examples that don't do this, but for the vast majority of cases, the main point has to get up to the highest level of that hierarchy that the author reaches. In other words, if the author gives you a solution to the problem, the main point needs to mention a solution to the problem. That's the main reason they're bringing it up is to talk about what's different about their approach. What's what's unique. I know you guys hate that word, but 
what is uh, different and unusual or a new approach, right? It's not an, basically any passage that, where the author um, proposes a solution, I can pretty much guarantee that you're going to see wrong answer choices that stop at describing the problem. They say, they'll say, oh, there's a problem with homelessness in San Francisco. Okay, well, did the author give a, propose a solution to that problem? Because if so, they didn't, the main point was not just to describe the problem. It was to, that's part of it. But really, the main point is to get all the way to here's what I think should happen. So if you just break passages down into they're either reporters, um, I call it like reporters, or then the next level up, um, don't really have a name for it, but basically just people complaining about things. <laughs> they, they put the problem out there, but then give no solutions. They're just saying what's wrong. And then the next level up would be they give their solution you always want to make sure that the solution is part of the main point and they're going to give you things that just describe the problem. So look out for that very common um, wrong answer choice on our seat. Critics, maybe. So we got like reporters, critics, yep. and then yeah. problem solvers. Yep. You know, exactly. So what level is it at? Are they just telling you that there's a thing or are they telling you there's a problem or are they actually solving the problem? Mm-hmm. So let me get this straight. We got reporters. We got then we got politicians, <laughs> and then we have Elon Musk. Is that right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> Actually, Elon Musk doesn't tell us the solution. He just goes and does it. So. That's true. Yeah, he doesn't propose. He doesn't propose solutions. He goes and solves it, and then just tells us, "Oh, hey guys, I solved it." Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, uh, that was a good discussion. Thanks, Matt, because I, I appreciate the, the hierarchy. I think I'm definitely going to start uh, talking about that more in class. Cool. Well, so what do you want to talk about next? I see on your list you've talked about your law school application and stuff like that, and I think people do want to know, like, you were clearly heading in this direction, and then <laughs> yeah, I mean, something happens. Well, yeah, so that's a good... so. For just to um, kind of give some background for everyone, I did apply to actually many law schools this cycle. Um, I still technically haven't ruled out going to law school next year, although basically um, I'm not going to law school next year, barring some sort of uh, miracle full ride offer off a wait list, which I don't think is a thing. Um, so, so barring that, I will not be going to law school Next ben year. and I are both have our fingers crossed that that doesn't happen, uh, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it'd probably be the first time uh, that someone got a full ride off a, a wait list. So I don't, I don't think you guys have to worry. But, um, but yeah, I've been bas- making calls, by the way, to these schools. Oh, so and- <laughs> we're undermining you at every, every opportunity. <laughs> um, but, but basically, I mean, I went in to this cycle again. I was lucky enough to have uh, you in, indoctrinating me into the right way of of thinking about law school and not paying for law school. So I was basically going in saying, let me see what offers I get, apply broadly, because um, I do have a, I have a 175, but my GPA is a 3.3, 3, um, which, you know, it was from U Chicago. I was proud of it at the time. Like I thought that was great. And then I, and then I started hearing what people 
that are applying to law school have for their GPA, and then it looks uh, not quite as great in comparison. But with a 3.3, I basically said, right, I'm going to apply to a bunch of schools. I think I applied to 22 schools and just see what offers I get. And if I get a full ride offer to um, somewhere that I would like to go, somewhere that I'd like to live, um, somewhere that I'd like to practice, you know, then I will um, go. And if I don't, I won't. And so I went into the process with that in mind so that I think I was just very, you know, kind of realistic and I... I knew I knew the numbers that were out there from looking at the offers people got from previous years that my GPA was probably going to be a problem. I didn't know since I have, you know, six or seven years of, of work experience, um, and I think pretty, you know, solid work experience in consulting and, you know, worked at a couple startups. I thought maybe that would affect uh, my scholarship offers, but I'm here to tell you... <laughs> your scholarship offers come down to your LSAT score and your GPA. And there might be exceptions to that rule. But for the vast majority of cases, if you just know those two factors, you pretty much know the scholarship offer you're going to get. So looking back, I probably um, could have uh, foreseen that basically all of the offers I got are in line with what I could have predicted from last year and what people got last year. It's very, you know, they call it, a holistic process. Um, I guess if you want to call using two variables holistic, um, which is basically what they're doing for scholarships. <laughs> maybe maybe they do more for admissions, but for scholarships, it's definitely down to to those two. And, and can you boost their ranking or or not? Um, it's holistic, Max, because they take your LSAT and your GPA and they combine those exactly. two into one number, which is your index which is number. All so that's why it's a holistic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I applied, um, you know, broadly. I mean, I got good offers. I got into NYU. Um, it's just that they're offering me zero dollars. <laughs> so the idea of living in New York City um, with two kids and paying full tuition at NYU, which is like 65,000 a year or something crazy like that. Um, and living in New York city and somehow working, um, part-time or something is just not, you know, obviously not really possible, um, for, for my situation. That could be a half a million dollars in debt. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is insane. All power, all the power to anyone who can go and and you know go to like NYU or Columbia at Sticker. Um, I'm not sure how you're able to afford that, but if you are and you're comfortable with that, or if your parents are paying for it, you know, again, more power to you. They're great schools, but it's just not. Yeah, rich people are insanely rich. I mean, that's no problem. Yeah, <laughs> the problem is just when people are borrowing that much money, there's just can't possibly be worth it. No, and you know, you're yes, the the um, people always come back to you. Oh, but the big law placement is is so great. I my response to that is I I think that's a great plan if you know that you're going to enjoy big law, which I think is sort of a big open question that a lot of people going into school haven't fully thought out, like, okay, what is my day-to-day life as a big law lawyer? And, you know, coming to terms with some of the maybe uncomfortable realities of depression rates and, 
you know, substance abuse. Um, is it even possible to know what life as a big law lawyer is like unless you closely know someone or worked in a big law firm for years? I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think even probably people that, you know, do know someone, it's, it's just hard to tell what your exact, you know, job is going to be like in a few years. You don't know what firm you're going to be at. Um, there's just a lot of variables there. So yes, big law can pay off your loans. You're going to get paid good money, but are you going to get burnt out after a year? Because then, you know, there goes your 180,000 to pay off those loans. And what are you going to do next? So, but yeah, I mean, coming back to uh, the offer and I can walk through, um, you know, I did get a couple full ride offers. It's just my wife and I have lived in Chicago our whole lives. So we were really hoping to, uh, for a change of scenery. So we applied, I applied to like University of Illinois, for example, got a full ride there. Um, University of Minnesota, but Minnesota basically hands out full rides like candy because they have to, it's a, it's essentially a tax they have to pay to get people to go out to Minnesota and bear Minnesota winters um, for for three years. So we knew we definitely didn't want to do that. Um, didn't want to live in St. Louis. So, and we only, I basically only got, you know, half scholarships to like UCLA and, and USC. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm not going to pay half to go to law school when I have, you know, a, a position, a role right now and a, an opportunity that I'm really happy with. I don't need to force it to go to law school if it's not, not the right option for me. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you have any specific questions about any of the schools or anything, but did you apply to like Fordham or, or other NYC schools? Yeah, I didn't. Um, so I applied to, I just applied to Columbia and NYU looking back, I probably should have, play the game a little bit better of, yeah, apply to more. And I mean, same thing in LA, I should have applied to more. I applied to UCLA, um, USC and Irvine, but I should apply to Loyola and, um, Santa Clara, Pepperdine, yeah, Southwestern. some of the other, some of the other schools, um, out in California, then maybe try to use those for negotiating. I don't, you know, I don't know, obviously if it would have worked to get me to a full ride per se, but it definitely looking back, it would have been, um, a good, a good strategy. I did apply to like UC Davis, but even there, you know, the UC schools are public schools. So it's not like I got a full ride at Davis. So I'm not going to be able to negotiate from less than a full ride at Davis to a full ride at, you know, UCLA or, or USC. Um, but no, I, I definitely looking back, I could have probably applied a little bit more broadly within the cities, um, that I was interested in. Yeah. Let one of those schools, you know, really, um, knock your socks off with a deal with an offer. Yep. I mean, it's possible that Pepperdine would have given you a full ride plus stipend or something, you know, you never know. Yeah. And you would have decided that your family would be happy living in Malibu for three years. I mean, yeah, it's a, <laughs> there's worse there's, things. That could there's definitely worse things. There's definitely worse things. Um, no, I mean, looking back, it, there's a lot of things I think um, I, I could have done differently. I did apply. So I applied early decision to uh, UCLA because they have a um, 
full tuition scholarship if you get into uh, that program. It's a great program. Anyone listening that is thinking of applying, you absolutely should. I mean, if you if you think you have a chance, obviously binding early decision is is scary in a lot of cases, but it becomes a lot less scary with the full ride tuition, um, full ride offer guaranteed and, and attached to it. So that was a, you know, a huge draw. I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to go, um, to UCLA and if I can get this full ride, then I'm done. And then, um, but you know, it's obviously competitive and, uh, I didn't get it. Um, the GPA factor is looking back. I guess I should have spent all my time in the library back at U Chicago, but I thought I already spent enough time. I, I already needed a lot of time just to get to a three point three. So I can't imagine the the people that are, that were getting three eights, three nines. I don't think. I think I would have probably dropped out if I was working that hard. I don't think I could have could have finished. Um, so so yeah. Probably, again, at this point, I'm basically on, let's see, eight, I think, wait lists. So technically, the uh, cycle is not over. Uh, again, I know you're trying to sabotage me, but if a, a last-minute full-ride offer to one of these schools I'm waitlisted that comes in, I might, uh, I might take it up, although at this point, that seems um, pretty much pretty unlikely. Well, we'll be interested to hear how the rest of the cycle goes. I mean, the cycle honestly doesn't end until like August. Right. Right. So yeah, it's, I know it'll be interesting. I mean, what I'm planning on doing is just continuing uh, regardless of my, I guess, uh, interest in, in continuing at some of these schools. I mean, I'm definitely going to keep trying and reaching out and just seeing if, if nothing else to report back to the podcast on, uh, you know, if, if reaching out to any of these schools and giving, you know, an updated letter, an updated resume, um, anything like that moves the needle, like on the wait list. Even when you withdraw your application from a school, that's part of the negotiation, right? So if you ask USC or UCLA for more money and they say no, you could always say, okay, thank you very much. You know, I have these full ride offers. I'm going to take one of those, um, you can go ahead and withdraw my application. Yep. And just see what they say. Yeah. Might... So I so I actually did. So I can fill you in on, oh, okay. on USC and uh, UCLA. I did that. And because um, I was like, well, it's, you know, it's worth a shot. I know that I'm not going to go for half tuition. So I, yeah. I, I might as well just shoot for the fences at this point and just see what they say. Right. So I basically reached out and was like, look... I've got full ride offers at other schools. I know this is probably a little unrealistic to demand a full ride offer um, at your school, considering I'm at basically half right now, but that's kind of what I'll need. And, uh, you know, they both kind of said, well, uh, no. <laughs> and that was yeah. that. And, then, and that's fully what I expected, but it's it's obviously... Um, still worth a shot. I mean, for anyone in that position, you know, you have to withdraw at some point, either by default, by not paying the deposit or by going and withdrawing yourself. You might as well just send an email and try to negotiate as much as you can uh, before you withdraw because they're going to, you're going to be automatically withdrawn in a couple days anyways. You might as well try to get more money from it. It 
might not work, but who knows? I mean, people yeah. just need to try things more. That's just a a big, <laughs> <laughs> you just need to try more. I mean, that's how I reached out to you guys originally. It wasn't like you had a, oh, here's an open position for someone to help out with the demon. I just sent both of you guys an email and was like, here's what I can do. Do you need any of this? Because if you do, um, I want to help you. And I think you kind of, people need that same approach, whether it's, you know, reaching out to law schools, reaching out to people for, for jobs, um, whatever it is, just, just try it. I mean, the worst that could happen is they say no. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. Everyone's going to move on with their lives. They make these exact, or they get these emails, you know, probably hundreds of these emails a day as it gets close to the end of, um, you know, when you have to put your, your seat deposit in. So you are just one more person applying. Um, and yeah, don't be afraid to demand whatever you need to, to go to their school before you withdraw. Yeah, they're doing this negotiation with hundreds of other students. And whether or not you participate in the negotiation process, there is a negotiation going on. And if you just don't say anything, and just don't pay the deposit, then you're nothing to them. You know, you just, oh, well, that person didn't pay their deposit. Okay, they're gone. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, if you're proactive and you communicate with them, not only that, you know, the USC, UCLA, they both said no. But when you show back up on September 1st in the beginning of a new cycle with a new application, maybe an updated personal statement, mm-hmm. you know, maybe an updated resume, Hey, I've done these other, you know, accomplishments. Oh, by the way, I'm back here. You know, I'm still interested in UCLA, still interested in UC- USC. And they might remember that you, you know, you were you were willing to say, "Hey, I need full tuition or I can't do it. I just I can't for my family, I can't afford it." Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's like maybe they don't remember, but maybe they do remember. And if they do, then it could work out in your favor totally that you were you were proactive about the whole thing totally yeah i just had i had two two questions for you max one was did you when you negotiated with them in those emails did you actually say hey i I realized that it may be unreasonable to go from half to full i did yeah i wanted to sort of like point that out i do that sometimes when i'm it's kind of like you know granting People say if you're trying to sell a product, it can be effective at first to admit a weakness of the product because then people will trust you. It's kind of that same approach. Like, hey, look, I know this is, I'm at half tuition. And instead of just coming off as like delusional and that, oh, this will be easy to get from half to full. I just am kind of saying, look, this might be unrealistic. I don't know what your scholarship committee's process is for reviewing these, but this is basically what I would need to attend your school. So I want to put it out there because if you are able to reach that, then yeah, I'd be interested. But that way you don't kind of come off as, you know, thinking, I mean, you could come off otherwise, I think at least as thinking, um, thinking that like this is you know super realistic and that you are expecting them to come up a lot um i just wanted to put it out there so that i could admit like look i you probably won't be able to do this um and i don't know kind of just maybe um build rapport with the the person a little bit on the other side yeah the reason i asked is that 
my gut reaction was the opposite. Like, I <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, the reality is that in some cases it may help people and in other cases it may, may hurt. But um, depending on who's reading that email, right? And the best thing that you said is just try and, and learn from the experience. But in some ways, it, to me, it almost feels like you're <laughs> admitting that it's a, it's a, it's a reach. Whereas in some ways, I I don't know if that's necessarily true, Max, like you, you bring a lot of value to that school and maybe full freight is exactly what they should be paying for you. And it's not unreasonable to ask that and to even expect that. And so in some ways I feel like it might like listening to you say that made me feel like you were selling yourself short. Like, Hey, I'd love to come to your school, but I need a full ride for my family. I need a full ride for what I'm going to do, but I plan to go there and, you know, kick ass. I mean, my experience with you has been you worked very hard. And so in some ways I feel like you're you're almost like giving in to their expectations of you as someone who's only worth half. And so, I don't know, that's just how I felt as you were saying that. Yeah, I mean, that's a good that's good to hear. I mean, I, I definitely thought about it before putting that and decided to say that just because, well, I don't know if I said that to USC. I definitely said it to UCLA. I think my thinking on UCLA was they already had a chance to give me a full ride and said no, basically, with the early decision application because there's not... It's not like they say we are going to give exactly this many awards. Um, I think it's kind of... It's a little flexible it seems like and how many exactly they award they don't publish it um on the site and when I was kind of trying to dig in to that um you know it wasn't super clear like how many they offer and I think that's intentional I think they're leaving up to basically saying look if we're able to give you a full ride as part of this early decision program we will do it so for UCLA I wanted to say that just because I didn't want to sound unreasonable like, hey, look, I, I applied. You said no to a full ride. I'm coming right back and asking for one again. So I, from my perspective, I was trying to like say, look, I'm granting you that you already tried this out. So I don't know if this is even something you know that makes sense, but here it is. Uh, but I could totally see the other side. Um, as well. My, my second question is, are you planning to apply to more schools next cycle? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's up in the air right now. I would definitely, if I felt like there was a good, if I felt like there was a good chance that I would get different outcomes um, for one reason or another, then I definitely would consider it. Um, like, I don't know, maybe maybe a new, I, I to me though, I just don't know I don't know, again, coming back to like the GPA and, and your LSAT determining, at least it seems to me in all the data that I've seen, it determines your scholarship and the money is the most important thing to me. What I would just need to figure out is, is there actually a realistic chance for me to get more money than I got this cycle? I don't know if a like maybe a personal statement can help you get a full ride. Um, if so, then I, I would definitely consider like, doing a new personal statement, saying what I've been working on, um, you know, the last year, which I think would be good experience to talk about, but I, I wouldn't do it. I won't do it unless I feel like I'm going to get a different outcome, I guess. And I think maybe I would just talk to, 
um, you know, like narrow, I would definitely narrow it down a lot and it would only be a couple schools, but maybe I would just talk to the deans at those schools in advance and be like, look, I applied last year. These are the results I got. I would consider applying again, but just tell it to me straight. Like, is, is it even realistic that I would get more money this year or is, are you pretty locked down in terms of how your scholarship committee looks at GPA and LSAT? Because I can't change obviously my GPA, um, so if that's really going to limit my scholarship to being lower than full ride, then, you know, I'm not going to apply. Um, that's basically yeah, what it come down to. I guess I was asking cause Nathan, Nathan was talking about, you know, going to other schools and applying to other schools and possibly getting a full ride to them. And I feel like as much as I want to discourage people from going to law school, um, uh, blindly or not realizing what they're getting into. I mean, if this is what you want to do, maybe you just need to apply to more schools and get a full ride plus a stipend somewhere else. And even if it's a lower ranked school, I, I don't know that I would give up so much on your, you know, goal to practice law if that's really what you want to do. I I, I do think the cost could be worth it, or at least you know the cost in going to a lower ranked school, but yet get a full ride or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely something that I'm going to still consider. Um, I would just want to make sure that, yeah, I would, it would be a lot narrower. It would be like pick a couple that I know, you know, I could get a full ride at or a full ride plus stipend and then just apply there and have like a really set plan for, this is what I'm going to do, um, then yeah, absolutely. But um, I think this year was really just, I guess, I thought maybe that when I, I knew the data that was out there, but I thought it was like, okay, well, they take other things into account. It's not really your LSAT and it's not really only your LSAT and GPA. And then, you know, when I got the offers back from everything I've seen, it really seems like it is. Um, and so, I know that now, right? I didn't know that at the time. Um, but, but yeah, I think I would narrow the search a lot and then definitely consider, you know, picking a school that, you know, maybe it's not the number one ranked school, but, um, could work for, for my family and for my situation and would be, would be free. I would definitely, definitely consider it. Yeah. Pick a few places where you could see yourself living and then apply to all the schools in, in those couple places. I mean, even if it's just LA and New York city or something, yeah. but apply to all of them, including the lower ranked schools. And then, you know, give yourself several competing offers in the same urban area. You might find that the negotiation goes a little smoother, right? I mean, UCLA is not going to be like, oh, you got a full ride to Minnesota? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll match that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, I can tell you right now, to anyone who's wondering, um, you know, but by all means, be excited about your full ride to Wash U or Minnesota, but those are not going to do much for negotiating. The schools know what, which other schools hand out the full rides. They don't really negotiate with them especially if they're not in the same region california yeah i was gonna say it'll probably work in the midwest yeah oh, absolutely like you might be able to negotiate with um northwestern uh and minnesota you are not going to be able to negotiate with ucla in minnesota I, I don't think at least maybe you can sometimes but it's not from what i've seen i don't think that that's an easy comparison for them to make 
Um, I think they're just going to say, well, if you want to stay in the Midwest, go for it. We know what it's, you know, we're, we're betting that you want to come out here to California, which they're, they're totally right. (laughs) 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 They call, they basically called me on that one. Right. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear more about your tips on networking your way to startup jobs, um, LinkedIn hacks, how to cold email, resume mistakes. These are for people who maybe say, hey, look, I I get the message. I'm not going to go to law school, but I want to join the, I would guess you would, you're, you're talking about tech startups more here, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my background, but really, I mean, could apply to any, um, small company. So just to circle back to my experience for a second, spent a couple years after school um, doing tech consulting. And then uh, for like a, for Accenture basically, and then decided I wanted something smaller. So I went basically from to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I was, you know, one of 200,000 or whatever it is at Accenture to, I was the third employee at a tech startup that had, you know, no money. Um, I wasn't paid for the first three, four months, maybe. So basically working for, for free for a tech startup that was in the health insurance space, um, basically providing software to like mom and pop insurance brokers that were trying to compete with some of these new technology platforms like Zenefits and Gusto, these things that do your payroll and then take in, um, the insurance commissions, basically by being your broker of record. Um, The software was trying to make these, you know, small insurance, again, companies um, that are selling like to to, um, other companies, trying to make them more competitive. Um, But the idea behind networking your way um, to these jobs, the number one tip I can give anyone if if you're interested in working in a startup don't look for open jobs at startups, right? Don't go and search job boards. The reality is most start, a lot of startups don't even have time <laughs> to post a job up there or um, they, they don't have the time. They don't have the money. They haven't even fully thought about, you know, what job um, they need to fill right now. So the, the way to actually do it is to think about what you bring to the table and then go connect with people at these small companies and tell them what you can offer, right? So usually that is going to have to come in the form of proving it to them. Um, So again, it's not just telling them, well, start with an email telling them what you can do. But then at the end of the day, the best way to show people that is to actually do some work, right? Do some free work for them. Say, oh, you know, I noticed on, um, you know, let's say you can do uh, web design. Well, just go to someone and give them specific things that you could change about their website, offer to do it for free. And then if they like you, you know, as they grow, maybe they'll bring you on as a designer. You're going to get that phone call from them before they go and bother posting that job on a job board. If they like your work, now they're connected with you. Why would they bother going through this expensive process of finding a recruiter and posting the job when they could just call you and say, Hey, we've got a full-time opening now. Um, why not come, come work for us? Well, I, it's interesting that you're saying that because when, uh, Rachel Gezersay, who's the, uh, the, the author of the law career playbook was talking to our students in Vegas at the weekend class there. 
um, I felt like <laughs> in a lot of ways it's totally different industry and, you know, um, <clears throat> different mindset and different kinds of uh, people who go into law than go into startups. But uh, this the same sort of message seemed to be, be she was saying, she was saying that people don't get their jobs through OCI. I mean, they do on some level, but a lot of people get their jobs through their network and through who they know and through reaching out to people and um, letting them know that you're there, what you can do, that you're interested. Uh, and when she was talking, I was thinking about all the jobs that I've ever had, and they've all been through people I know and not through mm-hmm. this formal process. And in fact, I spend a lot of time sending out resumes to law firms and doing those sorts of things. And, you know, they they you'd start this interview process or something, but then there's this whole, like, backlog of, communication that takes time and it just doesn't and it's like you know someone somewhere and they're like yeah come on in (laughs) you talk for for 30 minutes and they're like great you know you want to (laughs) start in a couple weeks and it's like yeah it just seems like that's how a lot of business gets done is through who you know yeah it's it's absolutely true and and to your point it doesn't probably this advice probably applies broader um, definitely applies broader than just um, startups I think it's just especially effective with how small um, companies are, right? If you can just come in and like, they might, again, not even know, like there might not be an easy way for them to even describe the job they need on a job posting. So you might mm-hmm. just be able to come in and say, here are the five things that I think I'm, could really deliver right now. Um, and then if you fit what they need, right, they're going to go to you before trying to go on, um, this huge search for, through a bunch of resume. They don't want to be reading resumes. They just want to know, I know this person can do the job because they've already showed, they showed me that they can do this job. They did some free work for us. Um, we're really happy with it and we can just basically pull the trigger and not go through that job search process at all and not pay a recruiter, that alone is such a huge advantage that, um, so, so coming back to, well, how do you actually like find these people and how do you connect to them? So number one tip is just, again, people need to just try things. So try, um, there's two, the two main things I'd recommend would be LinkedIn and just cold emailing. So on LinkedIn, um, one thing that I think people realize, but maybe don't fully appreciate is if you are what's called, what they call a second, second degree connection to someone, basically you are, you have a mutual connection with this person. They will see that when you go to connect with them. So what that means is let's say that I know um, I bring skills in, you know, kind of what people call customer success, kind of dealing with users of, of software. So if I wanted to get a job at a company where I know that the person that would be hiring is the director of customer success, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not a second degree connection with them. I don't have any mutual connections, but I have a second degree connection with someone else at the company. I'll just go and connect with them that other person, right? Because that person is going to see, oh, okay, well, we have a mutual connection. Um, sure, I'll connect with them. And I think people overthink this. They're like, oh, but, you know, I don't know them. Like, what if, what if they say no? What if they don't connect with me? Like, again, if they don't connect with you, 
then life goes on and nothing happens. But if they do connect with you, well, now you are going to be a second degree connection of that hiring manager, of the director of customer success, because it, you know, presumably they're going to be connected to people at their own company. And so now when you try to go connect with them and say, hey, I think I might um, have some skills that I can bring to the table, they're going to see you come in, see that you already have a mutual connection. And I can tell you right now, it absolutely makes a huge difference for their likelihood to actually read your email, uh, read your LinkedIn message, if they see that you even have one mutual connection. So go find mm -hmm. the, the, basically it's like you go find the in at that company of someone that you have a mutual connection with. You go and just connect with them. You don't even have to say anything to that person. Like You can literally just click the button connect. I, I've done this countless times. And people will just say, oh, okay, I don't know who you are, but sure, I'll connect with you. And then at that point, now you, you know, now it looks at least to the hiring manager, right? It's kind of like, you know, fake it till you make it for a second here. But now to the hiring manager, it's like, oh, okay, we have a mutual connection. So I'll read their email and then maybe get back to them. So that's one way to do it through LinkedIn. Um, to do it in a cold email, I mean, just honestly, again, write up an email. And the, the key in a cold email is just make it clear like what, what you'd recommend, what you think the next step could be. I think what people do wrong in any email is they just like write up a bunch of things and there's no clear like, hey, maybe I could do X for you. So like when I was emailing um, you guys, it was like, well, I've, you know, written LSAT explanations before. Maybe I could take a stab at writing an explanation or maybe I could help you guys with, you know, the demon and asking users uh, what they think about it. Right. So I was actually giving specific things that I could do next. Can I read the email? Yeah, absolutely. This was from January 5th. I get, hi, Nathan. First of all, uh, sorry, first off, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. After listening to every episode, I was able to bring my score up from a 154 diagnostic to a 175 on the July test. Thank you so much for all you do. Frankly, with all the free advice you've given me, I feel like an asshole for waiting this long to reach out. Ha ha. Uh, Max clearly knows his target there <laughs> dropping asshole into the first paragraph you know you don't want to probably do that with everybody you're cold emailing oh, wait, wait, but that's, this is an example email right so just copy if this. you're cold emailing me <laughs> then you probably can get away with that um you inspired me to quit my full-time job early and become an LSAT tutor. Since October, I have 175 hours of one-on-one -on -one LSAT tutoring under my belt on Wiseant. I noticed the other day that students can book time with Shay on your site now. Would you consider taking me on as another tutor that students can book through your site? So far, all of the 143 ratings I've received are five stars. The link below shows my ratings and reviews. He sent a link to his Wiseant page. Let me know. And that was it. And then let's see. The next thing that happened was, yeah, a couple days later, I emailed Ben. And I don't know, a few days later, we got back to Max, I guess. Yeah. And said, hey, <laughs> you seem interesting. You know, like you obviously like our shit if you're listening to the podcast and using it to prepare 175 is a great score 175 hours of one-on-one -on -one tutoring on wiseant is great bunch of great reviews on wiseant is great uh let's see if we can work together sure 
Yeah, I remember when you sent me that email, Nathan. Um, I the 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 hours that you had worked and the reviews you had gotten, Max, stuck out to me, and that's that's what you were talking about earlier, showing rather than just telling, right? Like if you had said that you're a great tutor who knows how to help students get better scores on the LSAT, mm-hmm. I doubt I would have suggested that we respond to you. Yeah, because yeah, we get 100%. these emails every now and then from people, and it's just like. You know, you can't you can't respond to all of them. You can't accommodate everybody. There's not that much need or demand, but um, or there is actually. It's just you can't trust everyone out there, especially if all you know about them is an email. But when I saw that, I was like, okay. It was still like, hmm. Let's learn more about Max. Mm-hmm. And then you did that work for us, and we liked what you did. And so again, it was all showing. Yeah, yeah, and I think what again there was. There's no, um, I'm just at the point now where I'm used to, you know, cold emailing people all the time. So like, and I, it was no problem for me to send that. But I think if there's one thing I can just stress for people, if people don't respond to you, if people, I think people have this fear that if people don't respond, it's like this big embarrassing moment in their life. And in reality, people don't care. They like archived your email and they've already forgotten about it. They've forgotten about you it's not embarrassing because they are not thinking about it. So just send the email. And then if something happens to come of it, great. And if not, then, you know, move on with your life and try emailing someone else for a different opportunity. But yeah, and and the showing part, I mean, if you are, I've had people ask me, like I'll tutor them and then they're like, oh, well, this seems cool. How could I, like, how do I become a tutor? And I'm basically just like, well, just I don't start, like keep your rate low and go on something like Wiseant and start to try to tutor and then slowly build up. It's all about proving it. So you're going to have to keep your, like, you have to sacrifice something. You either have to work for free, you have to work for cheap. You got to do something to, you know, it's a chicken and an egg uh, problem where you don't have any reviews. You have no proof that you're actually good at what you're saying you're doing. So just build up that proof. You know, if it was, uh, you want to be a web designer, then go design some web pages for free. And then you have those for your portfolio or, you know, same thing for a, for a program or anything. Um, but yeah, you just need that proof and that proof is going to go a lot, a lot further, um, than you just making claims. I would like to shift the discussion just a little bit cause we're kind of going yeah. long yeah. here. Um, yeah. I, I want to know, uh, what it's like to be an LSAT demon equipped tutor. So I want to know what your, cause I've, I've been using the demon with my students. So I know what it's like for me. I want to know what it's like for you, Max, to be using the demon with your students. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's so much better for me personally. So before I had the demon, I was doing it for tutoring it was a huge hassle to try to coordinate. Okay, here's what you're going to be working on. And then, all right, send me which ones you got wrong and send me your results. And it was all this back and forth. And then students would forget. They would lose the email. We wouldn't be able to communicate on what we're going to be working on. With the demon, it's very simple. I say, um, sometimes it'll be, depending on the student, it's sometimes and where they're at, it's either more directed, like, hey, go do this practice test. Some students, a lot of students, it's just, go work on things, flag the things you have questions about, 
um, I basically have access to their login so that I go in before the lesson, I can see everything they had questions about. I can pick out a few questions that I think would be great examples of things to talk about together and things that could really, um, you know, kind of maximize our time together and then go in and we just pull those out. Uh, I pull it up and we're basically sharing my screen and there's no wasted time. There's no shuffling through papers, trying to find what we're working on. It's just, everything is right there. I can pull it up. We go through it. I answer your questions. We talk about the questions that you missed. And it's, again, it's, I think it's just the efficiency factor that makes that tutoring lesson go so smoothly. I think sometimes people are worried, like, you know, um, a tutoring is obviously uh, pricier than doing getting a book or um, a class, at least per hour it is. But if you go in knowing that basically we're going to be able to make the most out of your time because you're coming in with a set list of questions that we get to see without any additional effort. You don't really have to send anything or even like like my students don't need to even communicate with me and say, oh, hey, here's the things I want to work on. I just see it in the demon. I see, I see things flagged. Um, I see what you're getting wrong. Like, so sometimes people won't flag something, but I'm like, eh, let's talk about this. Right. Cause I can see you missed it. And if you're not getting that concept, I know that that's something you need to work on. So I will sort of flag things myself for students. I can go in and say, no, this one we need to talk about. Um, so it's been great. I've gotten great feedback from the students as well, just saying, wow, it's so nice to not have to stress about exactly, uh, you know, what do I need to work on this week? It's more just go in and do things. It's more of that attitude of if you do something every day, you're going to be getting better yourself. And then we have basically a bank of things to talk about whenever we meet, whether that's, you know, just whenever, you know, ad hoc lessons that they're booking kind of as they collect a list of questions. That's how I do it with some students. It's basically like go in the demon, keep flagging things until you have enough that can fill out a two hour session. And then we meet. Right. And then other people we meet every week and it's just we cover whatever um, they flagged in the last week. But it's been great. It's I um, have all my tutoring students um, go on the demon and run lessons through that. And again, gotten I love it. And I've gotten great feedback from every single student um, that's used it for tutoring. It's interesting to hear you talk about this, because when I think about how technology is helping our lives. They, I feel like I've read this before in different places, but the best systems out there seem to use both humans and computers. It's like you can do all, you know, you can work with just a tutor or you can work with just a demon, but like, or a computer, but really the best of both worlds is where you have them together so it's like the demon is giving you the questions that are at your skill level. Like you guys don't have to spend any time thinking about that. It's making that decision. And it's in the best place to do that, right? Because it's just going based off your data. But then when it comes to the thought process, which the demon you know, can't listen to the student's thought process, you can chime in and say, aha, wait, wait, what did you just say? Why did you say that? Here's what you need to fix. Now go and start doing more challenges at your skill level. Because they say that 
the optimal learning takes place when you're doing something that are, it's at 75% of your difficulty level, right? Like it's mm-hmm. doable enough that you can actually get them right, but it's hard enough that you're getting at least 25% of them wrong. Otherwise, it's too easy and you're, you're wasting time or it's too hard and you're wasting time. So it's kind of cool to hear this like happening together. It's like symbi- symbiosis or whatever that yeah, term is. I, I can chime in on that. I mean, I was working with a student the other day online and, you know, he's in Tucson and I'm in L.A. And so we're hundreds of miles apart. But then he's got the demon up and he's sharing his screen with me. And I was actually just watching him do questions on the demon Mm. and just sort of, you know, I was reading through the question and thinking it through myself, but I was also watching him do it and kind of hearing him do it. And he, I was watching him, you know, like eliminating answers, but then go back and uneliminate the answer, Mm. but then go eliminate the answer again. (laughs) It was just like, as a tutor, I was able to really get insights into how he was thinking um, because I was, you know, he's just sharing his screen on the demon. So I think there's lots of different ways that tutors can use it effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and that's just, you know, I'm still kind of, um, learning new, you know, little ways to use it and new, you know, kind of getting ideas for the demon, um, from my students. So some of the, you know, ideas that we've put into the product roadmap and stuff have come directly from, using this in tutoring sessions because it's obviously hard to always know exactly how people use software until you actually talk to them. And that's why um, it's really, really helpful. Uh, first of all, any feedback that um, anyone can give us in the Slack group, um, we really do put that into um, the roadmap and kind of help. it helps prioritize those things. Um, we are trying to, if you're designing software, you have an idea of how you think people are going to use it, but you don't actually know until people do use it. And then a lot of times it's a lot different maybe than you think. Like I going in before I talked to demon users, I didn't know how important the discrete factor is. The fact that you're not, you know, carrying around a book that says LSAT in huge letters on the side of it. But when I talk to people on the phone, at least 50% of people mentioned that. And so it's things like that, that you just might not pick up until you actually use it. So let us know if, you know, you're um, either using it with a tutor right now or, or just yourself. If there's other suggestions you have, it really does help because um, I think sometimes people assume like, Oh, I'm sure this idea has been brought up before. Uh, don't assume that, right? We might not have heard that idea. So go ahead and, um, shoot it over to us. What's the best way for them to do that, Max? So the best way is probably in, um, the Slack group. So if it, if there's like a bug or a typo or something like that, I'd probably say do it. Um, you can flag those types of things, uh, in the demon itself. There's that like exclamation point button. And if you click that, then you can report those issues. That's probably the best place for that. Um, the Slack group, there's a product roadmap channel. Um, that's the best place for feature requests and um, to kind of hear from us on, on what's coming. I would also say that even if someone has mentioned the feature request before um, or you, you feel like <laughs> you know that they have, mentioning it doesn't hurt because some of our decisions, right, Max, when we get on that, that 
Tuesday morning call, we're like, okay, we've heard this 10 times this last week. Clearly, this is a, a pressure point. This is something that is affecting a lot of people. Um, so that does help us make decisions to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Max, how do uh, people reach out to you for tutoring? Yeah, so you can go to my website is learnlsat.com, L-E-A-R-N-L-S-A-T.com, or you can just email me at max at learnlsat.com. Again, if it's just because about 50% of people think my name is Matt. It is max, M-A-X, at learnlsat.com. <laughs> I'm assuming you have a catch-all email for that. Yeah, you know what? Actually, wow, I don't. But I, uh, need, <laughs> I <laughs> don't need, assume. I need ben. to go at it. You got to put in the feature it request. It will be there. It will be there by the time this drops for sure. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks, Max, for coming on. Yeah. I, that was a great discussion. A lot of um, things covered there. I feel like it would be great to have you back again. So. Awesome. I, yeah, we got lots more to talk about, Max. So we'll uh, we'll have you back again. Great. Soon. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Mm -hmm. See you, Max. See ya. All right. Well, um, that that went longer than I expected, but um, let's jump in here. I guess. Do you still have time? I have time. Um, I don't know if we have time to do the full fundamental. I mean, maybe we do. If you, if you, I don't know how long it'll even go. I. So I should hop off in twenty minutes. Actually, I have a, I have a hard out at that time. But um, so let's do all this other stuff then. We'll, we'll yeah. leave the uh, conditionals, advanced conditionals, fundamental for next time. Okay. Cool. Uh, so really quick, upcoming events on April fourteenth. That's uh, Sunday. We are going to. I guess that's yeah. That's this coming Sunday. We're going to be talking at UVA, or at least I will be there at 4 p.m. Um, you can RSVP on our Instagram at Thinking LSAT. If you haven't followed us there, I would suggest doing that. Um, on the 19th, the March scores will be released. On the 23rd of April, Nathan is giving a talk in or at Seattle University at 12.30 p.m. You can also sign up or RSVP for that on Instagram. And on May 1st, that's the last day to register for the June LSAT. Ooh, I'm actually glad to know that. I was just telling someone that the other day. Yeah, we need to have that in the agenda always because we get we get emails all the time or phone calls or text messages with people like, well, should I shoot for June or should I shoot for July? And it's like, hey, shoot for June. Don't register yet. Yeah. Wait until May 1st. Right. There's no, I mean, if you're sure you're going to take it in June, then there's reason to sign up early so that you can get your preferred testing center or whatever. But if you're not sure, you know, if you're 10 points away from your target score and you're not hundred percent sure, I just don't think you need to make that decision right now. There's no reason not to kick that can down the road. And before you plunk down the $190, cause you know, we've talked about how their change fee and their, (laughs) all that is like ridiculously overpriced. Right. So there's a lot of reason to wait until the last minute they've put the incentives in place. It's their (laughs) own fucking fault. (laughs) People should just (laughs) wait until the last minute to sign up for the LSAT. Um, if you're not a hundred percent sure. And if you, if you are a hundred percent sure, then just go ahead and register. But otherwise, yeah, May 1st is the last day to register for the June LSAT. So you've got a full month of prep, you know, before you decide. I wonder if they'd get more uh, registrations overall registrations that follow through if they just said you can cancel at any time for free you know up to a week before or something like that 
Like basically make it very low risk, you know? And then people just say, oh, okay, and then they sign up. And once you sign up, you know, you're kind of, com- you're more likely to follow through because now you have to opt out. I don't know. Yeah, that I do think that that's sensible, but. <laughs> Speculating <laughs> on something that I have no control over. Um, yeah. <laughs> in any case, if you have questions, you can always email the show at helpwiththinkinglsat.com. Please send us your selfies. Uh, don't let that prevent you from emailing us if you don't want to send your selfie, but we love getting them and uh, including them in the show notes when we have the opportunity to do so. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, and thinkinglset.com, which is in the process, uh, thanks to Sarah, our VIP gatekeeper, um, to it, which is going to get a, up, a facelift. It's, it's going to be upgraded soon, and we'd love to get your feedback on that, but not yet. So if you have not left a review for us on iTunes, we would love that. We like to hear what everybody has to say, good or bad. It helps the show, and it's the word out to other people. All right, so we will skip the LSAT fundamental this week. I feel like we did a good job talking about reading comp, though, with Max, so hopefully that will satisfy everyone. Uh, we have this email from listener Katie. It's from Willamette Law or University. Um, what is going on here, Nathan? (laughs) It's a cartoon. Um, the top, there's a headline that says it's almost over period. Good luck on Saturday's LSAT exclamation point. And then we see a cartoon in four panels. It has a balloon that says me with a smiley face on the balloon. So the balloon is me. Then we have screaming in from the next panel, a dart. The dart has a label on it. (laughs) The label says LSAT exam. So that's the law school admission test exam (laughs) coming in, screaming hot toward the balloon. The third panel um, has the arrow Uh, the dart perilously close to the balloon. The balloon is still smiling. And then in the fourth panel, we have the dart hitting the balloon and just crushing into a million pieces because the balloon is impervious. And then it says from your friends at Willamette law, we're rooting for you exclamation point. Then it has the pitch to apply to Willamette law saying, Interested in applying for fall of 2019? We are a rolling admissions school, meaning that we accept a March, June, and July LSAT for fall 2019 admission. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so if you feel like going to a pretty shitty law school with a you know shitty LSAT score and applying really late and getting in at the last minute, Willamette might be for you. I mean, I don't know their ranking. Maybe I shouldn't say they're shitty, but if they're taking the July LSAT for fall 2019 admission, that's a, that's not a good sign. That's a big red flag. Yeah. Also, this email is, I'm still perplexed by it. Does it suggest that we're all balloons? That we're all vulnerable to popping? No, it's the opposite of that. It's, (laughs) it's that, it's that we're, because we have... (laughs) Because we have such mental fortitude, this 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 dart, which is looks like it's made of steel or something, mm-hmm. but the dart hits the balloon and it just shatters. 
and the balloon just doesn't change. The balloon just sits there with its little smiley face on it because you've uh, honed your mental game. Hmm. Mind, <laughs> <laughs> Mind over matter. Yes, I think that's the point. Yeah. I guess okay. that's their point. Yeah, I don't, I Wait, don't know. So we do have a pearl yeah. here. Or yeah, we do. Okay. We need more, so please email help at thinkinglsat.com with more pearls versus turds. But yes, we do have one. You want to read it? Yeah, let's, let's tackle this. So this is, uh, just so you know, the scoreboard, we have one pearl in the bank. We have 12 turds and five ties. This particular advice, this particular piece of advice was given to an emailer. I assume the implied advice is pay for law school. Okay. Let's see what the advice says. It says, you need to understand that those low-tier law schools are notoriously known for baiting and switching. Provide you with an offer you cannot refuse, and then once you have the offer, the offer is close to impossible to meet. And once you fail to meet the offer, you're stuck at a low-tier law school with a full tuition bill. So when they say um, the offer is close to impossible to meet, they're referring to the renewal requirements for the scholarship, I'm assuming. In other words, some schools will only renew your scholarship if you meet a certain GPA or something along those lines. So, yeah, what do you think about this? Well... We've talked about this on the show plenty of times. I mean, it depends on the school. There there are schools where they'll say, hey, it's a 3.0 to renew your scholarship, and that sounds really easy to renew. And, but then you realize once you start, if you're just completely naive, you, you start school there and you realize, oh, the, the 1L GPA is curved around a 2.7 mean and if the mean is 2.7, then, I mean, that means that, like, three-quarters of the class are not going to have a 3.0. Yeah. And so they are going to reduce or eliminate tons of scholarships. Um, so to that extent, this is a good piece of advice. It's it's certainly something to, to look at. But I, I can't call this a pearl because all you have to do is look at the 509 report. I mean, I just, you know, Max was talking about his full ride that he got to Minnesota, right? Minnesota is not a top 14 school. Some people are going to think that Minnesota is a lower ranked school, right? Oh, well, they're just giving you that full ride because, you know, they're a lower ranked school. And, oh, these lower ranked schools, they're notorious for their bait and switch, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a turd as as it applies to Minnesota because I just looked at their 509 And it says this school does not award scholarships that may be reduced or eliminated based on law school academic performance other than failure to maintain good academic standing. Mm -hmm. Now, what is good academic standing? I'm pretty sure that's just 2.0, like stay enrolled in the school. Basically, you're not (laughs) there. They would kick you out if you fail all your classes. Yeah. But that is not happening. Yeah. You know, it it, and if you're a if you're a scholarship student at Minnesota, you're going to keep your scholarship. Mm-hmm. So I guess it just depends. I mean, where, Ben, what's a low-ranked law school that you would be worried about, re, you know, reducing or eliminating their their scholarship? I would be worried about schools that are not ranked. Um, something or, on the East Coast. What about something in the D.C. area that people get full rides from all the time? Uh, actually, that's a good question. I I don't know what their renewal requirements are. There, there's not any particular school that I'm worried about, but. I just always tell people, make sure you know what you're signing up for. 
What's what's the renewal requirement? Because it's going to vary from school to school. So let's just look. I mean, I'm just picking a random school in the D.C. area. George sure. Mason University. Okay. George Mason is a good school. Uh, it should be ranked in the 30s or 40s. Conditional scholarships. Uh, students matriculating in the 2017-2018 academic year, 0% entered with conditional scholarships. So zero of them were reduced or eliminated. Okay. In the 2016-2017 academic year, there were 33 who entered with a conditional scholarship, and five of those were reduced or eliminated. Mm. In 2015-2016, there were 136 entering with a conditional scholarship and 43 reduced or eliminated. Mm. So, you know, back then it was a pretty good chance. What is that? About a third of getting your scholarship reduced or eliminated at George Mason. But I don't know. You just have to look at your school's ABA 509. I mean, if you're not looking at the 509, you're just making such a huge mistake. Yeah, that that is very interesting, actually. Um, I'm I'm wondering why it's gone down. Is the number of uh, scholarship awards has also gone down? You well, the number of somatic. conditional scholarships. Oh, the number of conditional scholarships has gone down. I mean, still no. I mean, last year at George Mason, eighty six percent of the sco- of the class received a grant. Wow. Hmm. Uh, and of those, thirty seven percent were half to full. was full, 17% was more than full. So like at that school, you know, and I mean, for a lot of people, George Mason is one of those lower ranked law schools. Yeah. Right. It's not Georgetown. I mean, it's a fine law school. It's just not the top 14 and it's not like some premier whatever. But, and so they do sometimes have conditional scholarships. If you get a scholarship offer, you need to ask whether it's conditional. You need to ask what the renewal requirements are. You need to look at the 509 and see how many people, you know, got their scholarship eliminated last year. If they give you a GPA requirement, you need to ask if the 1L grades are curved. And if they're curved, what's the center of the curve? Yeah. Because if they're if they're requiring a GPA that's higher than the center of the curve, then yeah, like you know, <laughs> it's probably going to be hard to renew that. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so what do you what do you vote here on the pearl versus turd? I, I think it's a tie. I would say that this is something to be aware of, but you need to dig deeper. Okay, another tie. So it's one, twelve, and six. You know, it's just I guess the the thing that emerges from all this, Ben, is that there's just not a lot of there, there's a lot of blanket bad advice. Mm-hmm. there's not a lot of blanket good advice. There is some advice that has like a nugget of truth in it, <laughs> but it's basically just like, well, in certain circumstances, yes, you need to think about this. You know, when you were talking about the numbers at uh, GMU and the, uh, you said 86% are receiving some sort of yes. scholarship, right? Yes. So for some reason that just made me think of JCPenney because I, I don't ever shop there, but <laughs> You've I, complained I I, about JCPenney on the show before. Oh, I, like I have? This. Okay, yeah. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I read some article about them a while ago that basically said that, that they're in a constant state of sales, right? They, they don't ever not have sales. Right. And... Um, and so now they're stuck there that you can't get out of it once you get into right. that position. And 
I just went to their website and the top banner says, you know, 60% off of this stuff, 40% off of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. and then it's like this big, huge banner. And it, it made me laugh because I was like, this is really how law school, you know, websites should look, right? They should say, <laughs> come here. These are These are all the deals that are going on. If you're not getting one of these, you should feel the same way that you're feeling if you check out of JCPenney at full price. It's like, how the fuck did I miss a deal? Because everyone else around you is paying 60% off, 40% off, something like that. So if you're paying sticker price, it's just not the time to buy. I'm looking now at UC Davis just because I know that UC Davis is notorious for offering tons of scholarships. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. and when I say notorious... Um, I don't, I actually don't mean notorious. I should say a different word. I should say famous for, um, for giving a lot of scholarships. So UC Davis, uh, the tuition, wow, the tuition is, oh, that's per semester. (laughs) Okay. So the per semester tuition is a lot. It's, uh, 24,000 for California residents, 28,000 for non-residents at UC Davis, but grants and scholarships, 92% of the class, Ben, receiving grants. Wow. 23% of the class gets less than half tuition. So if they give you, you know, a, they could give you a scholarship of like, hey, we're going to give you $20,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's worse than almost everyone that you're going to school with. Um, <laughs> but 55% of the class is getting half to full tuition. That's crazy, Ben. Yeah. Uh, but an additional 14% of the class are getting more than full tuition. Wow. So that's a total of 69% of the class who are getting more than half off. Wow. The lesson there is don't be in that 31%. Do not. Yeah. If you're in that 31%, you're getting so screwed. You're getting <laughs> you're paying for other people's tuition and those people have higher LSAT and GPA stats than you do you're just gonna have a hard time there Uh, you know on average on average (laughs) everybody can be the exception (laughs) just probably not so (laughs) it's my my point is not don't apply to davis my point is do apply to davis absolutely apply to davis yeah just make sure that you're in that you know 55 percent or even better the 14 percent that are getting more than full tuition um because when i look at the conditional scholarships for uc davis the school does not award scholarships that may be reduced or eliminated based on law school academic performance. Wow. So, you know, those are good deals. Those are awesome deals. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, but let's just wrap this up with one, one more. I just want to look at like, um, you know, Southwestern. Yeah. I could also look at golden gate. I could also look at a million other law schools that are, you know, they're fine. They're fine. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. They're fine. Southwestern. So here's where you got to be careful. Southwestern gave 54% of their class some kind of grant. 33% of those were less than half. 19% were half to full. 1% full, 1% more than full. That was for 2017, 2018. Not as generous with the scholarships as I would have thought. And then when you look at the conditional scholarships table... Last year, there were 106 people who entered with a conditional scholarship, 
and 46 of those had their scholarship reduced or eliminated. So, you mm-hmm. know, cl- close to half yeah. got them reduced or eliminated. So that's a school where, you know, if you get a conditional scholarship to Southwestern, I would look at those stats and I would go, okay, so you have close to a 50% chance that you're going to lose your scholarship or that they're going to at least reduce it. Yeah. Assuming that you are equally situated with other people, which, you know, I just don't have any reason to suspect you're not. Yeah. Okay. Should we wrap it up? We should. Um, If you have not joined the uh, Facebook group, feel free to join the group on Facebook. It's called the Thinking LSAT Podcast Group. There's 1,300-some-odd members there. Um, You can also follow us at Thinking LSAT on Instagram, on Twitter, we're at Thinking LSAT. Nathan is at N Fox, and I'm at Olson Benjamin. We both uh, have our respective companies. Mine is Strategy Prep in uh, Washington, D.C. You can find more information at strategyprep.com. Or uh, if you want to learn more about Nathan's classes in L.A. and San Francisco, you can go to foxlsat.com. We also both do one-on-one tutoring. Uh, our joint project, if you haven't heard about it yet, which would be a little crazy, but if you haven't, it's lsatdemon.com. You can go there, start a free trial for a week, do as many questions as you can in that time, and then, of course, sign up if you have become addicted, as so many others have said they have. Um, that was show number 187. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>